Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Will Clark, a first assistant director whose credits include Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, and this year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In part one of our conversation, we discuss Will's duties as an assistant director and the challenges of shooting films like Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. The episode is online and you can listen to it now. In today's conversation, we dive deep into the making of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. From managing the schedule of actors like Leo DiCaprio and Al Pacino, the secrecy surrounding the project and how it affected the day-to-day production, what to expect from deleted scenes, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Bill, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm very excited we can meet back again and uh, this time break down the movie. If people want, they can go back and revisit the part one of our conversation where we talk about the creative duties in New York. I, I prefer to call it volume one. Volume one. <laughs> <laughs> they can go back and check out volume one of our conversation in regards to the creative duties and your experiences of first AD specifically. But today we're here to creatively and enthusiastically talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I wanted to first off, just what we started last time, uh, discuss the experience of receiving the screenplay specifically. I thought I would play you a clip right now of Quentin telling the story of what your reaction was specifically when you read the script, and then perhaps you can elaborate on that. Uh, one of the first people to read the script was my, um, uh, my first AD, Bill Clark. And he's been my first AD since um, Jackie Brown. And on Pulp Fiction, he was a PA. Can't even imagine making a movie without him. And so he came down to the house to read it because we weren't giving it out. You have to come to my house to read it. These guys will tell you that. And uh, he came down to the house to read it, you know, uh, says, okay, so this is number nine, huh? Okay. You know, and he goes out by the pool and he reads it and he comes back, damn, number nine is like all eight of them put together. (laughs) And I hadn't really thought about it like that, but then, you know, there was just, you know, little things. (laughs) How early on do you remember Quentin talking to you about the project? And again, if you could elaborate, once you read, what excited you as an audience member and what kind of worried you as a first AD in regards to what that was going to entail? It was uh, June or July, I believe, of the year before we did it. It was a relatively warm day. I remember that. I was excited. I'm just, you know, I'm just always excited when I hear from Quentin and he's doing and excited about a movie and he genuinely is excited gets excited about the process. It's it's all a really big deal for him, you know, on a creative level and on an emotional level. They're, they're like his babies. And so there's always that excitement just, you know, when you drive up to the house to go read the new project, which is going to be everything you think about for the next year and a half. You know, you got to try not to think about it for like six months. And then from that point forward, it's going to occupy just about every thought you have for a year. And so that is really, for me, exciting especially you know in this business you know it's always next job moving from one thing to the next and so to know what you're doing that far in advance is kind of a nice thing just from the get-go in this industry and then knowing that it's going to be elite is a special pleasure that uh, i'm uh, proud to have been privileged with for a long time it's good are you guys talking about any potential ideas or is it more of like, you know, let that sink in, we'll pick the conversation up in a couple of months? That first discussion is purely uh, contextual. 
it, it, we rarely start to say, you know, when Candyland needs to be on a stage and we got to blow it up, so we got to build it there. We don't, uh, that kind of discussion will come and there'll be plenty. But uh, that initial reading is really, what do you think? Because yeah, he's on pins and needles too. I'm, I'm honored again. He doesn't ask a ton of people to come read the script. As a matter of fact, as few people as possible because, you know, leaks, <laughs> you know, put on a special server because it leaks. It actually doesn't even go on a server. It's that precious to him. It's just the one copy. Even to be part of the discussion in that phase of it is really mind-blowing and flattering. Well, then, then let me ask you about that because I think where you just mentioned the idea of the one copy and Brad Pitt was another who discussed the, the uniqueness of this literally printed script and by the time people are going, coming back, you know, over the weeks, you start seeing coffee stains and you, you know, the screenplay is lift because it's people are handling and moving and there's just this one copy. How does the secrecy of these kind of projects impact your job, especially you of all people are the one handling the script. How much are you judging whether to hand out and tell people and how much to withhold in regards to information? Well, there's quite a bit, even starting with the most basic elements of my job, making the shooting schedule, you're putting the one line together for so everybody can see the schedule in strip form on a handful of pieces of paper and keep them in their pocket. You give a synopsis for every scene that's in the movie. And you try to give as much information in the synopsis as you can so people can relate the synopsis to the scene without having to go page through the scene number and remember specifically, which they have done countless times. So in that synopsis, you try to say what's happening. Not the case in this case. You, you try to allude to what might be happening. Like uh, the whole end, every scene I basically called uh, violence. I just called the last scene violence. Uh, I called it something violence. It just alluded to the fact that this is the end. This is the fight. I can't, don't want to say who's in the fight. I don't want to say what cast members are even there. I mean, they have their numbers, but if you don't have the reference sheet, it's hard to tell. So I had to be very cautious because people drop them, people leave them, and you can go through and figure it out. And then when it came to the sides, we handed out sides and you were to return them at the end of the day. And uh, we were very specific as to even who would get them, you know, because everybody has to know the work we're doing. But the last, you know, with the hateful eight almost didn't happen because it was leaked out onto the internet because of of an agent making a photocopy and one of the assistants getting a hold of it and making copies and the next thing you know, it's on Gawker. And uh, we did not want that to happen, especially even more so with this movie because it had such a dramatic, different ending than uh, what is real, historically correct, and what, you know, might have been instead of ending the hippie culture at that moment in time. What if it stayed alive? You know, what if peace, love, and happiness continued to rule the day into the 70s? Who knows? What did Charlie say? He said, go to Terry's old house and kill everybody in there. And you heard him yourself. You said, make it witchy. We all grew up watching TV, you know what I mean? And if you grew up watching TV, that means you grew up watching murder. Mm -hmm. Every show on TV that was an I Love Lucy was about murder. So, my idea is, we kill the people who taught us to kill. I mean, where the fuck are we, man? We are in fucking Hollywood, man. The people an entire generation grew up watching kill people live here. And they live in pig shit fucking luxury. I say fuck them. With regard to the third act, the crew, even the, the department heads, the key elemental people making the picture did not have their own physical possession of the third act 
in pre-production into production. The third act was kept in the accounting department in two separate loose-leaf binders of the third act. And if you needed to read the third act or reference for equipment to do your job, you would go to the accounting department. You would say, I would like to see the third act, please. And they would unlock the safe and give you the third act and you'd go to the room right there and you'd read what you needed to read and you'd return it to the accounting department. They'd put it back in the safe. That's just the way it was. That's, That's just the way it had to be. I was wondering, you just read the script and production's on the way. Finally, we're doing this and you're sitting down and it's your job. We talked last times about the creative assumptions you could make putting together a schedule. But in regards to this, I'm curious to ask you, how did your first draft of the schedule change and differ from the way it ultimately was in regards to what you thought the schedule should have been and ultimately what it had to be? There's so many incarnations you go through, um, you know, especially when you're working on 100 days of, of filmmaking. Yeah, from, from where we leapt off to where we finished, it doesn't feel like it was terribly different. You know, I remember one, uh, one unfortunate thing that worked in our favor was Inaratu had Leo lined up for another movie and that kind of fell apart in early in pre-production, which allowed us to expand the dates that uh, Leo was available to us. I, although it was sad that because Inaratu is a great filmmaker, I would have loved to have seen what that film would, would be. It was fortunate for us because, and, and I think fortunate for Leo because he really puts his heart and soul into the character and to have uh, Damocles over him as he's continuing to develop because it was a hard character for him because there's so many characters in one. It was a great thing. So we were able to make that work a little bit more logical, a little bit more situational, you know, grow into, you know, because we shot the third act last. It, it, that's an important aspect of any movie you make with Quentin in particular. It's helpful with any filmmaker because things develop and, you know, they, they might change or morph a little bit as you go through the production process. So having the ability to take what you've learned from the shooting the first couple of acts and mingling it into the third act helps with the storytelling a lot of times. And with Quentin, it's, it's, uh, since it's all about story, it's, it's imperative. Yeah, I, I, you, you don't even consider trying to bring something that uh, is the end of the movie towards the beginning or the middle. It's just counterproductive because he is always working to improve the material throughout. Sometimes his first idea isn't his best idea. He's, he's the first to say it. And the dude has great instincts, so you, you have to trust them. Do these... Extra, I mean, I'm taking this example of more days with Leo. Is that closer to allowing you guys to challenge the material and potentially go back and reshoot parts of it? Or is it more like, oh, thank God, we can do four days as opposed to three days. So now we can all breathe a little more for that upcoming sequence. We're not going to have to rush really through it. We have a little more time. It's not so much a more breathing room. It's more of a um, place and time you know, where in the schedule it was. Because, you know, in this example, you know, Leo, although his ending was separate from what Brad did, you know, Leo was outside with the flamethrower and Brad's inside with the, with Brandy and, and the three of them and, and the LSD, which, you know, is always the best way to fight Manson's. <laughs> um, we would have had to have shoot Leo's ending somewhere in the middle. And I knew Quentin was uncomfortable with that, you know. He was going to do it, but he was uncomfortable with it. So when that happened, we were able to okay, it's going back, you know, and we even, it was the last day of shooting. Leo's business was ultimately really the last full company day of shooting that we did. And um, that seems kind of appropriate. 
Last time you told me something fascinating, you were telling me how you love for your first days to get your number one on the call sheet with the director so they can hopefully establish that creative partnership right away. Do you, you just told me the last day, do you remember what your first day on the movie was and why you felt like that scene was the right one to start with? Well, the, fir the first day was actually kind of a non-day. It was a, a because uh, we had a qualifying day to qualify for the tax credit in California that we had achieved by a certain date to qualify. So when we actually started shooting in mid-June for the straight 100 days, we had a first day on May 14th where we shot James Marsden. We shot a Red Apple commercial that was to air on the television in Cliff's trailer. Quentin decided not to use it. There was enough Red Apple stuff and the Robert Goulet and Mannix is just perfect for Cliff and, and says something too, you know, the uh, African-American secretary had one of the first major African-American roles in 1969 there. It's right there in Cliff's trailer. It's a nice, nice little note to make. So that was our first day, the Red Apple getting that red apple stuff together. We were talking about the fact that obviously smart scheduling can also really help out your line producer when it comes to budgeting. And nowhere is more true than, than of course, scheduling actors, as we said, especially ones who have a limited role in a movie like this. And I'm just thinking, for example, Al Pacino who's sprinkled throughout the movie and comes back time and time again. Are you, in his case, for example, trying to group all those days together to make sure he's in and out as smoothly as possible? Yeah, I mean, another benefit of you know working with Quentin is everybody wants to work with Quentin. So that helps a lot, you know, that you get a lot of leeway, you know. But we, you know, with Al, we wanted to make sure we want to keep him two weeks. Because again, you know, for actors of this caliber, it's a burden to carry that character with you. You know, I mean, it's a, that's a burden of pleasure, but it's a burden nonetheless. It seems to me, I, I can't speak firsthand because I'm not a thespian, never planned, never thought of it aside from a... Even though I did, by the way, I jumped in last night and I was like, it's been a while since I've seen that Kill Bill Volume 2 cameo. Mm -hmm. And I went back and if anyone listening hasn't seen it, Kill Bill Volume 2, spot Bill Clark. See, now that performance affected me for weeks after that. But, uh, but they do. They carry the burden of the character uh, with them as they constantly try to develop and hone it throughout. So, yeah, there's, a, there's the financial aspect of, you know, everybody gets paid. So, you know, you want to keep it condensed from that perspective. There's also just the simple respect perspective. You do, you know, we're not going to spread Al Pacino out for four months for nine days of work. I think he worked with us for nine days. And you don't want to keep Al Pacino for three months for nine days of work. You know, Brando maybe. You know, Brando we might keep for because it's good. Brando gets paid weekly. Yeah. So it's even nice for Brando. But we try to compress it to, you know, make sure we put the money on the screen. So uh, you've been doing uh, guest shots on uh, episodic TV shows the last couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm doing a, a pilot for CBS right now. It's, uh, it's, called, it's called Lancer. I play the heavy. And, and I got an FBI that, that, that airs this Sunday. You, um, you, you always play the bad guy on these shows? Yeah. So, and they, they have a fight scene at the end of them? Uh, not, not, uh, not, not, not Land of the Giants or, or FBI, but the, the rest, yeah. yeah. And you lose in the fight? <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm the heavy. <laughs> oh, that's an old trick pulled by the networks. So you got a new guy like Scott Brown. You want to build up his bona fides, right? So you hire a guy from a canceled show to play the heavy. <laughs> then at the end of the show, when they fight, it's hero besting heavy. But 
What the audience sees is Bingo Martin whipping Jake Cahill's ass. Then next week, it's Ron Eli. Now in another couple of years playing punching bag to every swinging dick new to the network, that's gonna have a psychological effect on how the audience perceives you. Down goes you, down goes your career as a leading man. Let's go back to what we were talking about. You know, I, I, it's been so wonderful seeing you guys recreate, you know, what is in the mind of Quentin is the ideal Hollywood of 69. And it was exciting because you're going from, you know, we just spoke about before starting Melody Ranch, where you guys shot Django, and then you got a bit of Universal Studios in the Western Street. And I, you know, we shot at Paramount and I recognized the exterior of Paramount just when uh, Cliff comes pick uh, Rick up and they just drive away after the day of work. So what is the conversation like in regards to selecting? And we're going to get into Lancer and Bounty Lot but understanding for the schedule, for the travel, what studios are going to be best for what sequence? Well, we, you know, we talk about it. We think about what the sequences is and we examine it and we're going to go to the right place. You know, all filmmakers understand, Quentin in particular, understand you don't want to have part of the scene here, part of the scene there, part of the scene there, but you want to make it right. So you have to find the proper compromise. That's part of filmmaking. That's what we do. So there's no effort to let's tighten this up from that perspective, and certainly not on this picture where we were hitting a lot of authentic locations as well. You know, we went to the real Playboy Mansion, you know. The Spawn Ranch was right next door to the real Spawn Ranch. And that's, you know, that's an important element for Quentin too. I mean, we shot Kill Bill in China to invoke the spirit of Shen-Chi. Glorious Bastards had to be in the middle of Berlin. Had to be, you know. These, these are emotional aspects that are required to get the energy that he needs, which comes across and works. He's right. So he, he captures it. You know, this was hard because there's a tremendous amount of locations with regards to the lots. Do we choose this one? We looked in New Mexico a little bit at some of the uh, Western towns they had there. And again, they shot Lancer on one of these lots right here in California. So it felt right to be at Universal where Jim Stacy used to walk the, in between, you know, the, the stages, riding the golf cart. There they were. They were there. So, The two places I really wasn't able to pick out were the Bruce Lee argument with Cliff. No, that was uh, an adult high school in Norwalk. What? It so an adult walk high school me through that. Is that because you're going through on, on so many backlots and yet you choose to go to a high school because... What was that offering you? That was Quentin driving that chain. It was, you know, Barbara Ling did a great job with everything. And we were looking at lots. We were looking at real lots. You know, we looked at Paramount. We looked, you know, the, so the doors could be there and whatnot. But Quentin had a very clear idea. What was most important to him was to get a place where he could put that big-ass poster up. That was really number one. And the rest he wanted to just fake. He kind of wanted a blank canvas that we could create. And... Um, you know, Barbara got with Rick Schuler, the location manager, and they they found this high school. It's an, I think it's an adult high school, or, but it's there in Norwalk, and it had the right tone of the back of the stage. It had one, the gymnasium had this one big wall for the uh, poster that he wanted, and we brought in, you know, old movie trailers and made it the back of the sound stage. My name's Cliff. I'm Rick Dalton's stunt double. Stuntman? You know you're kind of pretty for a stuntman. That's what they tell me. So, did I say something funny, stun man? Yeah, you kind of did. What's so funny? You're a little man with a big mouth and a big chip. And I think you should be embarrassed to suggest you be anything more than a stain on the seat of Cassius Clay's trunks. 
brother. You're the one with the big mouth. And I would really enjoy closing it, especially in front of all my friends. But my hands are registered as lethal weapons. That means we get into a fight, I accidentally kill you, I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. Allow me to ask you a little bit about Bounty Law and, and Lancer. And just generally, there's so much film within film or TV series within film, if we can say also. So I was wondering if you thought there was a correct approach to scheduling these films within films. I can imagine they're not any less important than the rest of the movie, because if you're shooting them, probably it's because you think they're going to make the cut. Otherwise, you're not wasting your time. But are you treating those differently from any other days? No. No, 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 they're just like any other scene. They, they were important scenes, and we wanted to, we wanted to do them first as well because they're Rick's past. So again, you know, this is a perfect way to get the actor to develop his character by seeing what he's done. So that was one of the first things we did. You know, we did the commercial, then when we came back, we did the couple of days at Melody Ranch, and then we went right to Universal and did Lancer. And so now we had a bit of everybody including Quentin and Leo, had a good feel for uh, what Rick's career was. What was Melody offering you that felt right for Bounty Law that perhaps Universal was right for, for Lancer? Is there any of that? or is it Yeah, just no, one? there's totally that. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the structures of the town. The Lancer, he wanted the town, you know, the brick buildings and the whatnot. Melody Ranch is really more of an outlaw town. You know, it's mostly wood and... Perfect for Django, it was perfect for Bounty Law, and Lancer Universal was perfect for Lancer. Going forward with the films within film, I just had a question for you. The FBI episode in which Rick is, is an original that starred in Leo's part, it was Burt Reynolds, originally. Acts of Violence. Acts of Violence. And I was blown away. I was watching the movie, and I don't know why, what I was thinking is, how are they getting clouds in the summer? You know, is that hard trying to match? Because you're working with something that has it's cloudy. It was in Malibu, from my understanding. Yeah, it was. It was. It was incredibly hard to match. Uh, you know, it was stressful because you know we you know we got to do it, and I know we need clouds, so we wanted to get there very very early in the morning because we had a better chance of marine layer. And um, once again, which I am always, I always say, uh, it seems pretty obvious to me that God's a Tarantino fan. Because I think when we cut on the last shot of that sequence, which we did very quickly, we because we knew we weren't going to have cloud cover for a long time. The clouds opened and it was sunny and we were in a new location where it didn't matter killing Nazis. Yeah. So you're, for example, combining a half a day of work in Malibu with another half where you're burning? Well, we found, we, the, you know, the 14 Fitz and McCluskey trailer, you know, where he shoots the Nazis. That was right, that was right around the bend. That's crazy. So we just found, you know, some old structure. And we're like, yeah, this could work. Yeah, we could kill a Nazi here. And then we'll kill a Nazi in this doorway. So we kill those Nazis and maybe we can do, you know. For a movie that has little to no visual effects at all, because you guys are going through a lot of effort of, of recreating as much of LA in camera as possible, I can't not ask you about the great escape scene. Mm -hmm. Again, we're talking about the difficulties of matching original footage. How hard is it or how easy is it in regards to- That one was kind of hard. You know, morphing in and out, Steve McQueen and Leo back and forth and being very critical about it because it had to look cool. It had to look right. And, uh, yeah, but we just did it on the roof of a building with, you know, proper sun, green screen. And 
It's amazing. Morphed, you know, John Dykstra's John Dykstra. So we have that going for us. And uh, our visual effects guy from Star Wars. Give me a a break. (laughs) Hills, isn't it? Captain Hills, actually. 17 escape attempts. 18. You have other plans? I haven't seen Berlin yet from the ground or from the air, and I plan on doing both before the war is over. 10 days isolation, Hills. Captain Hills. 20 days. Oh, uh, you'll still be here when I get out. Yeah, that that was really smooth. And there's there's a couple of other little things that that are slid in there that we, you know, not much. Everything we do, he, you know, he likes to do it in camera. If we find a way. Because you know, we could have, for the big shot that comes off of Leo in the pool, that comes back to reveal uh, Roman and Sharon coming out of their house, you can hide a cut in there. You know, people might not notice. No, but we, it was important to Quentin that we find a way to first find a house, two houses that have that kind of geography with the pool and a way that we can achieve that moment in time and tying those two people in. And we, we worked hard at it and we tested it and we achieved it. I'm glad you brought that up because number one, obviously for anyone who doesn't know, the original residence is no longer there. It's we did shoot on Cielo Drive, though. All the stuff with the kids going up, Tex and the gang going up the... That is the that, actual That's thing. the end. Coming back down, that little S-turn that Cliff makes after he drops them off at about 7 a.m. We, yeah. you know, out, out the, the door. door. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the that's, that's thing. the real that's the real scene. But in regards to the houses, I forget if it was Quentin or Bob Richardson who was talking about it. It sounds like those two crane shots, the one you just brought up with Leo rehearsing his lines and the Polanski's leaving for a date, and uh, then the final shot. Mm-hmm. You also have a very difficult crane, and it sounds like are you trying to combine those two because we have the the right equipment and we're gonna try and shoot them? Um, no, 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 no. no. They, they were both specifically designed in the in Quentin's mind, described to Bob and I, and then sent out to Bob. You know, Bob's team is incredible. Chris Centrell and Ian Kincaid. If you figure out how to Chris how to move the camera in the right position and Ian how to light the gosh darn thing when once we figure it all out, how we're seeing everything, and then we you know, put it. Together. We... Are shots like those like a full night of work each or half a day? It's such a long crane. Both of those pieces, we, I think we had half a day to try to, to, to achieve, and we did them faster than that. Because we also tested. We also went to the location with the equipment in the daytime just to see if it could work, which is an unusual luxury to have. But, you know, we weren't sure. So we got the permits and we got the equipment, and we just went up there, Bob and I, you know, without Quentin. Uh, and then Quentin showed up just to make sure that we could do it. And then it was exactly when we were encouraged and we moved forward on the day. What does a start of a day for you, you know better than anyone, sometimes it's nice to, with all of your crew there, just give a big picture. Today we're going to start with that, then we're going to move on to that, we're going to finish with that. Everybody clear? Any questions? No? Okay, let's go. What does safety meeting, you know, with, with Bill Clark look like at the beginning of the day? Well, at the beginning of the day, really, it's largely over the walkie-talkie because especially on a movie like that. We're so spread out. There's so many people involved. So you do it over the walkie-talkie and you communicate and you make sure that your second AD follows up on all the channels after you make the announcements. And it's just, you know, I normally go through a stupid fun shmeal. like ask my second. If you're my second, I'll say, Brando, come in, please. You say, yeah, go for Brando. I'm like, Brando, I got good news for you. Oh, really? What's the good news? It's 7 a.m. We're in, we're working. 
This is great. Look at all those people out there taking the same subway train they take every day. We're going right up the same elevator and we're out here today. We're at Spawn Ranch. This is great. You got to watch out for snakes here at Spawn Ranch. You got to make sure there's going to be animals around. Don't go near any of the animals unless you talk to the animal wranglers first. And we're going to be working up at, at the spawn house today. So it's very slippery up there. Don't walk, you know, stay off the brush and stay on the paths. And do not touch the crane, which is going through the roof of the house without talking to Chris and Trella first. Stay off the tops of ladders. Work happily, healthily, and confidently. Here we go. Choo-hoo! You, you, you can steal any material that you want. I like you it. You wouldn't be the first one. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you just mentioned Spawn Ranch, so I figured I'm... You know, I kind of asked you last time, but I'll be remiss not to ask you about Brewster and, and Burt Reynolds. I was incredibly happy, you know, and, and Quentin talked about it too, that, that Burt Reynolds got to read the part at the table read. So I was curious if you could share any memories from that, you know, first table read. And then I also want to ask, unfortunately, when you had to recast the role for Brewster and you're in the unfortunate position to be doing that as the train is already rolling. Yeah, that's never a good thing. You know, it's never, it's happened before too. And it's always sad, you know, it's just sad you have. I was excited about Burt Reynolds. I hadn't worked with him and I was really excited to see the character. And I'm, I'm equally as excited to have been in the room when he did do the character. And, you know, it's just, it's emotional. But we, we did, and especially, you know, led by Quentin, took a lot of solace in the fact that he was the character. You know, we even heard that he was rehearsing when he went to the bathroom and never came out for the character, you know, and that kind of warms us a little bit. And, and then, of course, we have the 50 years of work he left behind that we got to enjoy and laugh about. And act of violence, which we just talked about, he's there. And, you know, he's Leo is in his role. Leo, we actually put Leo in for Bert. And it's, you know, that's just fun stuff. It's fun. So he's a big part of this movie, uh, even if he didn't have the opportunity to uh, play the spawn on the ranch. Absolutely. W.C. Fields says famously that you should never work with kids or animals. And yet, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, these are some of the best part of the movie. On one side, you get Brandy the dog. And on the other, we just talked about the fantastic Julia Butters, which just steals the show so i i was just wondering to you what was the most surprising aspect of working with either of them throughout because she has quite a number once i started realizing the amount of stuff you guys have shot with her outside of what's already in the movie it seems to be quite a bit so it looks like you guys work together uh, quite extensively yeah well you know when it comes to julia butters i mean you quentin has an incredible instinct for casting i mean he's just he's gifted at finding the gifted and she is one of the gifted she's amazing you know and they're the two of them just hit it off immediately they're it was fun to watch you know because he's this big guy he's a big dude and she's this little girl and they're you know just goofy together you know so it was really a pleasure to watch them interact and she's so responsive and he gives such great direction that you can't almost you have to try not to be responsive, but she was so astute and understood everything and well beyond her years. We'll be seeing a lot of Julia Butters. Get used to get used to it. You don't eat lunch? I've got a scene after lunch. Yeah? Eating lunch before I do a scene makes me sluggish. I believe it's the job of an actor, and I say actor, not actress, because the word actress is nonsensical. It's the actor's job 
to avoid impediments to their performance. It's the actor's job to strive for 100% effectiveness. Naturally, we never succeed, but it's the pursuit that's meaningful. Who are you? You can call me Marabella. The kids' aspect is easier for Quentin because they talk back and they, you, they respond and they acknowledge you. Brandy is a little bit more frustrating for Quentin, though, because you don't direct the dog. You know, you ask the animal trainer to try to do something with the dog and you don't know, you don't completely understand how the dog is understanding or responding. But fortunately, we spent uh, our animal gang, uh, Gentle Jungle, did a great job of finding Brandy in the first place. And, um, you know, having a couple and then the hero, Brandy, just looked so great and just did things with her face. And when they got back to the editing room, Quentin's the first to say, I had no idea how good she was. <laughs> and she was great. And she's a character. She's up there on the poster. I know. I know. It was very... <laughs> That's was, big time. I'll ask you a little more about Brandy in a second. But I went to see the movie and I reached out to you and I said, you know, Bill, there's one scene which I could not figure out for the life of me. And I think it proves how a lot of little pieces have to come together for dialogue inside a moving vehicle. And I was thinking, for example, you know, Cliff giving a pussycat a ride over to the ranch. And I had seen plenty of footage of you guys on a, on a moving trailer. And then on top of that, you obviously have the car on of itself because you got to have your establishing shots and the drive-bys and all that stuff. And on top of that, what really threw me off is when, for example, Pussycat lays down and starts talking to Cliff on his lap. So how many little pieces have to come together for a sequence like that? How many different shooting techniques do you guys tackle when you're doing dialogue and moving vehicles? You know, that's a relatively healthy sequence. It's a sizable dialogue between the two of them and great dialogue between the two of them. And yeah, you know, so there was a lot of work to do that because we did also, you know, we did it on uh, several different streets. You know, we picked her up on, I want to say Vineland. And then we did a lot of the driving on the streets on Burbank Boulevard in, uh, in the valley as well. And then we had a drive on the freeway. We had to get them on the freeway, which we did on Hollywood Boulevard in the 101, which was fun. Which we talked about last time, yeah. how crazy it is. I mean, I'll ask in a bit, but there's all the background that goes into it. We're yeah, talking was, about that car, but there's so much around. That was, yeah, that was a healthy shot. That was, that was a, we did it quickly. We got it done. We got it done fast and it was great. It's in the movie and I love it. I'll always smile whenever I see that show. I just go, nobody will know, but I'll be happy. And then we had to get on the freeway. We had to, so we did the 90 freeway. We were able to possess in certain aspects over the course of a weekend and a little bit completely. And so you do, you know, your car to car, do your process trailer coverage. We just got a convertible for the over the top shot. We just got, you know, the car actually was a different color. You know, the rear of the car we shot, it was orange. Is right? that... If I remember correctly, it just had a white interior. So we just used that because it had the same white interior. And we just laid her down and shot her coverage with a couple of guys bouncing on the I car. I was going to say. Yeah, it was okay. just a couple of guys. And Brando could never tell him. Yeah. And it was very Well, then that's, the... that's where that's, that's your that's sound mixer. That's when yeah. your sound mixer comes in. First off, being able to capture the dialogue on the set, the, the production sound mixer, Mark Alano, and then Wiley gets it and to mix it back at the afterwards so it all it's all seamless throughout the whole scene, regardless of the fact that we shot over the course of seven different locations in ten different variations. Camila? Where are you going? I'm going to Chatsworth. Chatsworth. 
You hitch up and down Burbank Boulevard all day till someone says they'll drive you to Chatsworth. Tourists love to drive me. I'm their favorite part of their LA vacation, you know? They'll be telling stories about the Hollywood hippie girl that they gave a ride to the movie ranch for the rest of their lives. Wait, Spawn Movie Ranch? Yeah. That's where you're going, Spawn Movie Ranch? Uh-huh. Well, why are you going there? I live there. We were talking about last time that a first AD understands better than anyone, you in this case, the timing. You know, for in order for the director to focus on his lead actors, you have to worry about the timing of the cars and the person walking into the bar and out of that. Could you tell me a little more about how yourself try and work with the background talent to make sure that what's in the back doesn't distract from what's in the front? You watch. I mean, you, you watch. And sometimes you have to pull people out because they're a little... Too much. And it's sometimes it's not even their fault. Maybe their coat's a little too much. You know, maybe their sunglasses or their hat or whatever. And if you can't take the sunglasses off, take the hat off, take the jacket off. Well, they can't be naked. You know, so, so you know, sometimes that just happens and you go and you work it out and you change it. But you watch. You, you can see what's happening. You know, you know, I'm watching that very kind of specifically as well as keeping one eye on the actors who are performing right in front of you. And I'm just making sure that there's nothing that's going on back there that takes away from what the audience is focusing on. It should be adding to the experience, not taking away from the moments. So there's a balance for that. And you just, for me, it feels pretty obvious. So you, you can tell pretty quickly. You adjust it and uh, you try not to even set it up. You do a background rehearsal before the cast gets there. If you're ever waiting for them, just run me a background rehearsal. Just have them, let me see what they're going to do. And you normally perfect it. It's fast. Right there and there. Right there and there. And it's always less is always more as far as I'm concerned. Since the movie has been out and, and it's exciting to hear that there'll be a, an extended version, it excites me that there's there's a lot more. And what comes to mind, of course, we talked about, you know, James Marsden, but there seemed to be a little more of Charles Manson and perhaps Sharon Tate. But I was wondering if you could talk about some of the stuff that you was your favorite that you guys got to shoot. Because you guys are shooting all of this in 100 days, you said? Yeah, it was 110. That is a lot to shoot in 100 days. How much longer, you know, I mean, you have to ask Fred, Fredditor, the editor, Fred Raskin. <laughs> but I would guess it's probably four hours. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say 420 because it's a fun number. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly don't know the, the full running time. But I'm sure I, I could find out. If you want me to find out, I'll find out for you. Thank you very much. And they'll <laughs> never know. They'll never need to know. So was, for example, let's take a section like the, the pool party. Is that still part of the uh, Playboy Mansion sequence? Is that... No, 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 no. That was, uh, that is a party at the... It's, it's a little sequence where... Um, you know, I hate to give too much away because I do think everybody's going to get to see all of it in, sure. the, in the not too distant future. I'm hopeful, at least, that they. I'm relatively confident that you know, especially Quentin with what we about, did, yeah, yeah, which we did with what he did with the hateful eight. I would imagine something similar because there's a ton of great material that isn't in the film. You know, Tim Roth's whole character isn't in the film, and he's <laughs> it was hysterical. He was spectacular. He's Tim Roth. You know, he's, he was great. He had a scene with uh, Jay Sebring, Emil Hirsch, that is you know. Great. And we did this whole sequence at Tommy's Burgers, which was just cool. You know, just cool. All part of that little, little bits of stuff. 
So yeah, I, I, there's there's great stuff to that still people, to be seen. That people should be on the lookout for. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm confident. I'm hopeful. Hopefully confident. I'll be lobbying in the streets to get a signature. I, let me know if you need my signature. I'll sign it. Thank you. We'll storm that castle. <laughs> As I begin to wrap things up, let me ask you a little bit about you know the Manson third act. You know, we talked about the special secrecy you had to devolve to that sequence, but I was wondering how many days did you allow for that? And in a sequence where you're literally destroying the room as you go, I'm thinking, you know, continuity, I'm thinking resets. So again, how many days do you allow for that sequence? And did wrecking the set limit your number of takes? Is that, um, I can imagine a shooting in an order. Well, and we prepare for that. Uh Obviously, you know, we had different sections of rug so we could replace the rug when the blood gets on the rug. We had, I don't know if you know, but that stone, that fireplace really wasn't stone. And we had, it was a foam fireplace when it was bashing the head and then it was a real one when her skull started to break apart because we can't really break anybody's skull apart. No way. Yeah, no, it's, it's frowned upon. <laughs> so we, I think we had a week. We, we gave a week for that and then the, uh, a couple of days for uh, the Leo out at the pool and we just you know you you know what it is you know what's going to happen you know it's going to get bloody and messy so you know let's have three phones and we think three is enough should we get five well they're expensive to mold okay let's get four we know we're going to do this we get three four times to do it and replacing the glass on the pictures you know we know we're going to replace the glass on the pictures we're going to have three on standby and then we're going to start reusing them okay you start recycling them in the hopes you get in three. If you don't, you have a fourth and it's a recycled version. You know, we know that that lamp is going to be part of the process. Let's make sure we have four lamps, five lamps. Make sure we get the matching particles and or make it. You know, all those types of things we just try to talk about beforehand. Oh, I know you. I know all three of you. Yeah, Spawn Ranch. I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. Uh, you are... I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like Rex. Shoot him, Tex! Tex! In regards to, you know, the dog violence, we, we, we talked about Brandy. I was wondering, how do you try and create the illusion of out-of-control violence when I can imagine it's a very methodical set, and at the same time, as serious and violent as this gets... Hopefully, it's a still, you know, relaxing environment to work with. Well, our animal wranglers were great. You know, we had our, our head wrangler was brilliant, wonderful. She really did a lot of the, uh, a lot of the violence. Where we put her in the Maddie wig, and she got down there, and she works with, you know, her other trainers, and she doubled for her ultimately because she knows the dog. She's that's her job. She was great, and so you know, you just clear everybody out and. You let the trainers do their thing and you make sure that everybody understands the movement of the camera and where it's going to be and where we're going to go. And uh, you do what the animal people tell you. All the studio work, the interiors, you guys were doing it. Yeah, the inside of the house was at Raleigh Studios. The biggest cheer, I don't know about your experience when you got to see the movie, but the biggest cheer in my mind is obviously when Leo steps out with the flamethrower at the end. (laughs) People lose it all the time. And... You mentioned it was the last day of shooting. Could you talk a little bit about that last day? And, you know, what does the end of a production, the achievement, the victory look like once you're done with that? Which, again, it's a very fun, it's a violent, but it's a fun scene to shoot. 
Well, it was exciting. You know, it was exciting because of the material we're shooting was exciting. You know, we burn. You know, there's a stunt woman in that pool on fire, and that's exciting in itself. You know, and so there's all the protocol and safety that you have to be sure of that. And we're also in the Hollywood Hills with a flamethrower. Yeah. So there was a process. It was a, a a very healthy and methodical process to get to the shooting of that day. You know, so that was busy. You talk about safety meetings and things of that nature. You know, you have a basic safety meeting at the beginning of the day, but anytime you do something like this for each specific take and shot, you have another one. You have a very specific discussion where anybody who's going to be anywhere near it is a participant. And then after everybody listens, you kick most of them out anyway. You know, we had all the protocols to go to for all of that. And then, you know, to get just great stuff becomes even more titillating and exciting. And then people are on the pins and needles getting emotional also because we just spent the last year together and tonight we kind of say goodbye and there's a chance we might not see each other for a couple of months or you know in some cases years so there's emotion that goes with it and we largely do what we do best and you know one of the things you know pretty good at making movies but we're also pretty good at having a party so we we turn it into having a party uh, pretty close to the end and normally winds up on the grip or electric truck until dawn. You know, last time I remember you were telling me that on every movie, regardless of the years and years of experience you've had, there's always one thing that you're like, well, I've never seen that. Looking back now, I wonder what was your biggest fear going into this movie? How are we going to pull that off? And now that you mastered it, looking back, what was that one lesson you felt like you learned and walked away with? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say I had many fears. You know, there were a lot of things to think about, but I was, ne I was never fearful we wouldn't achieve them. I really just never, I literally more often than not don't think that way in general. I think if you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. You understand your parameters and you work towards the goal, especially as a group, you can achieve it. You know, looking back as far as uh, an achievement, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's as a whole, you know, uh, my biggest achievement is, you know, Quentin walking away and finishing the film and feeling incredibly proud in what he's put out there. That, for me, is an achievement. You know, so that was my goal. And I succeeded because of that. And that makes, nothing can make me happier than that. Bill, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming back. Volume two. In Volume the can. two. Can't wait. Thank you so, so much. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Mr. Clark for taking the time to meet me to record this conversation. And to Eric Boss, who mixes all of the episodes. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and leave a review so you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Stay tuned in the upcoming weeks for new conversations. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.